edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week, we're going to be thinking and chatting with two amazing individuals, um, Helen and Kat from the incredible VetLed team. Now, VetLed um, educate and empower veterinary professionals and leaders at every level to bring out the best in their organisations, teams and people. Uh, And they have a real focus on human factors and performance. We're recording a special podcast today in the lead up to their amazing uh, conference, which which takes place every year. And the topic of this year's conference is leading change. We hear a lot about voices in our profession calling for change of all sorts and I'm sure we can all kind of relate to that and I'm sure maybe you listening are one of those people but I think the question is how do we really do that? How can we improve things for the long term and not just apply sticking plasters to some of the problems within our profession and hopefully we'll cover some of that today. So we're really really excited to be joined by Helen and Kat. In our clinical segment today, we're going to round up um, some discussion that we've been having about leptospirosis, so looking a little bit more uh, today about the the diagnosis and treatment of that challenging condition. Shall we start with a quick selfie? Let's do something for social media while we're all feeling. Yeah, do something like that, Helen, that's fun. Uh, Hold on. (laughs) Everyone look happy and natural, go. (laughs) Okay. That was terrible. And then let's do a print screen. I promise I won't use them if they're hideous. Do I just press print screen? Summing print screen. Alt print screen. Control print screen. I've done a few. Okay. (laughs) Let's see how that turns out. Okay. Well, thanks so much, um, Kat and Helen, for joining us today. Um, we've, We've had the pleasure of having you both on the podcast before. I suppose we're going to do something slightly different from what we normally do today, where um, we're, we're, we're talking to people about whatever comes up, usually. Um, but today, I think um, we're talking to more than one person, which is always fun, but also um, maybe with just a bit more of a theme running through what we're discussing. And I, I actually really like that because it maybe gives us an opportunity to get down to the real answers to the questions of the day. Um, so we're, we're really in the lead up to your um, incredible um, conference, um, which we'll put details of in the show notes. But um, the, the, the theme of that and the theme of what we're discussing today is leading change. Now, that sounds really good. Um, and I think is obviously a really important topic. But I wonder, Kat, if you can just start just with that title in mind, why you chose that to be the overarching theme of your conference this year? Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for having us on the podcast again. It's a great joy to be here, as always. Um, That's a great question and a big one. Um, Leading change. We wanted to, um, I guess, be brave in challenging things in veterinary. Many of us at Better come from a veterinary background, both vets and nurses. Um, and I think in the professions, we hear quite a lot of voices calling for change of various different sorts. Um, and we wanted to address that and sort of say, well, what is it that people see that they want to change? Um, what's possible to change? And actually really dig into the how do we do that? Because we can have a lot of voices saying things, 
But actually what we want to do at VetLed is to be able to action real change and, and sustainable change as well. So it's change that really sticks. Um, so that's why we chose to tackle it um, and ask lots yeah. of people along um, to talk about change from a whole host of different angles. So I think that, I mean, I think that's a very kind of accurate representation of the mood within the profession as far as, you know, you you just have to go onto social media, in fact, or you don't have to, you don't have to go very far to find someone voicing an opinion about the potential need for change within the profession. Um, I suppose through conversations that I've had with various different people, Helen, I wonder whether actually some people would be of the opinion that the problem is so big and so multifactorial that actually who even knows where to start with all of this? Would you agree with that? I think that could be, you know, <laughs> that could that could be how it feels, certainly. Yeah. I think right now there are so many challenges within our profession that sometimes the only way to start is by taking a massive step back and looking at it from a more overarching perspective and then kind of almost putting things into different buckets of themes just like you do within research and saying okay let's let's have a look at this from different perspectives and actually see what we can do it might feel like baby steps or small changes to begin with but all of those changes are going to add up to hopefully a profession that can change for the better and change to be more healthy and more sustainable um, and to help our our um, wonderful vets and nurses and our practice managers and the whole practice teams really thrive that's that's what we need to work towards a sustainable culture where we can work together um to to deliver our fantastic knowledge and skills to our patients and and keep our clients happy too <laughs> yeah and i think well because I, I remember you know someone once describing problems to me you know as a very very tight ball of string and um and actually that is really overwhelming that image actually and you just but then it potentially is just about finding the end and just starting to kind of unravel that but I suppose leading on from that kind of idea of it being such a complex that and I can't remember who I, I said it but anytime you involve human beings the problem immediately becomes complicated right <laughs> so, right I yeah. mean because I mean genuinely the minute you involve a human being it just becomes complicated because actually as I've said many times, the animals are the easy part of our job. Definitely. It's the human beings that that are complicated. Um, so Kat, the, the the idea that there is a you know, there's an end to that ball of string and actually we 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 have to begin to kind of unravel that. Do you think there is an obvious and maybe this is a difficult question to answer, but do you think there is an obvious starting point to this? I mean, I suppose some would argue the starting point is recognizing that there is a problem. Right. But um, do you see that there is a, an obvious starting point to the change that we maybe need to to see? Yeah, I like that um, that visual of, of the ball of string. I thought that was really helpful. And actually, I don't want to take it too far because you can get ridiculous. But I, I, wonder, <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder whether... Take it further. <laughs> I wonder whether there's like multiple ends. And this sort of answers your question, right? That there's okay. not just one end where you have to start unravelling the world from. 
actually there's a lot of loose ends and we can start unpicking it from various angles. So there's not an absolute answer that the only way to make change with veterinary practice is to do X and that's the only starting point. Actually, everyone's coming at it from different angles and there'll be different scenarios in different practices and in different organisations like bigger scale and um, where we have to sort of start unpicking it gently and work out where the, where the areas for improvement are um, and how we actually make, make the next step towards um, changing. I, I also like the image of um, working out what the pebble in your shoe is. And that sort of, there's, a, there's little things that will be bugging individuals in practices or in, you know, leaders in groups. And actually starting with that little pebble in your shoe that's really annoying you and getting that sorted um, can be the, the starting point for change. And I think often these, you know, the, the sort of the drive for change snowballs um, as we see individuals making small steps in the right direction. Um, I'm always encouraged by the, the stat, and Helen may be able to correct me on the exact numbers here, um, but there's a stat about cultural change where I think it's between 25 and 40% of people on board. Um, and that's the, that's the tipping point for making, making a change in practice. And, and I always think that in a small veterinary practice, 25% of the number of people in that practice is not that many individuals, right? Um, you know, if you've got I know, six vets and 10 nurses, 25% of that team is not a huge amount. Um, so the potential for making change in practice and cultural change is, is enormous. Because I think, you know, and, and and this comes up, you know, through different things that we, we do actually working together. And I listen to a lot of the, you know, the, the courses that, that you guys deliver on leadership. You know, I, I often turn up. I mean, I'm not a good leader. I've been to lots of those Q&As and I've listened to all those lectures. I'm not sure that I'm any better, but I find it all very fascinating. Um, that's not a criticism of you. That's a criticism of me. Uh, by the way, your courses are very good. <laughs> oh, God, that sounded terrible. Please sign up. Um, but the... Um, I think what what I I hear a lot actually coming through is but what about that person that just will not accept that things you know need to be different or can be different and I think there will even be people listening who sort of say well I mean this is all well and good and I've heard all you know I've heard this before I feel like something needs to change, but I just, I, I, I can't, the, the, the problem is too, you know, too big. And, and actually taking it to the next level, there are some things about this profession that we probably can't change. So there are some elements to what people find stressful or difficult that what if you can't change some of this stuff? What if change is not always possible? Do you think that's unfair, Kat? I think it's really important here to um, sort of draw the, the differences between organisational change and personal change. So there's certain things that are possible at an individual level and there's certain things that just are not possible to change at an individual level. And there's a responsibility of an organisation that might be a huge organisation or a small practice um, to, to make change at that level. So we, we can't be asking Cat the vet to go and just not actual Cat the vet, like, excuse me. I was going to say, that's a parent. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, no, social media identity. Um, <laughs> Susan, the vet. No, Kat's, Kat's a friend of the podcast. She's been on it, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, to, to, to go and make um, change that's going to change a, a huge, huge company. Um, but what we can do is do what we, we can do at an individual level um, and then also work with the organisations to, to make sort of broader change. 
But I think that's actually a really important point, um, Helen, because I think the, you know, the, I think that's quite refreshing for people to hear because I certainly personally have struggled with the idea that, you know, I, I definitely, particularly in the early parts of my career, felt that it was, I had to work on myself and it was all the work was, was within me. And I think that's true to a certain extent. We do have to work on ourselves. And of course, personal, personal growth and change and development is important. But I think it's important to take the onus off the person and, and make sure that we're not making them feel like it's all down to them because it's absolutely not. Um, and actually that organisational change is an extremely important part of this, right? Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And even bigger than that, um, the professional change that's necessary. And I think that uh, one of the first sessions at the conference on the Friday is actually designed to particularly tackle this, to look at what the um, the particular problems we see in all domains of the profession are. We've got um, Malcolm Morley from the BVA, who obviously have um, released the Good Workplace Guide recently. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Melissa... Um, from RCVS, got Charlotte Pace from BVNA, and uh, you know a couple of other speakers on that panel who are all going to explore as a profession what are the overarching issues that we might need to look at changing, and then we can really begin to understand it. Because you're right, it's not just an individual; it needs to be it needs to be like a beautiful pyramid of kind of collective of of expansive, you know, taking responsibility for each and every one of us, but within our organisations, within our profession. Because as with many things together we can go so much further than we can alone and um you know by first of all recognizing what's possible um you know lots of people have recognized that the remit of vet nurses can increase you know and um i know on the panel that you're on we're going to talk about um Mm -hmm. sort of squiggles of different um Mm -hmm. sort of Mm -hmm. career pathways there's so much opportunity within the veterinary profession right now um, and i think we just need to embrace that but I think also there's even just, again, you know, visualization of, you know, I remember the uh, incredible Mandisa Green, um, say, you know, ex-RCBS uh, president saying, you know, from her perspective as a woman of colour and being in the position she was in, you know, if, if you can't see it, you can't be it. But I mean, I think that transcends everything. You know, if you if you if you think that we all fit into a certain pigeonhole and just do a certain thing. And actually it wasn't until I kind of started to, I suppose, spread my wings a bit and and meet other people within the profession outside internal medicine specialists where I was like, Oh no, there's, so there are other things, people do other things and it's, it's related to veterinary, but it's not always exactly what I thought the formula was and understanding that people don't, you know, fulfill a certain formulaic career a very linear career pathway that was one of the most like groundbreaking moments for me personally and that's why I think I'm speaking on this panel I think because (laughs) I hope because because I realized that I could kind of genuinely I could make it up a little bit myself and and that was okay and 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 that was very powerful for me so if I can let some other anyone understand that they can kind of make it up a bit and squiggle a bit and pivot a bit I think that's okay right yeah no (laughs) yeah I mean I think I said to you before Scott that when I first started my career as a vet nurse I assumed that I would get to the age of say 30 and then that would be the career over for me I I didn't know anybody who was over the age of 30 when I began as a vet nurse so I assumed that was going to be my career lifespan 
here I am, almost 33. Well, I was going to say, you you haven't reached 30 yet, so are you still, is that still a... Here I am. Right, so you're still... Okay, groundbreaking secret time here. Yeah, um, I'm significantly older than that now, and I'm still still within the profession, but because of the possibility of, yeah. of being able to pivot and to change and to, to be inspired by a wonderful profession to want to um, explore other areas. Yeah, and Kat, I'm sure you've had you've had similar similar experiences I think no yeah certainly I mean I spent time in clinical practice and now working out of clinical practice but still in the veterinary world and I think similar to Helen I thought that it was either you were either in veterinary or out of veterinary and there wasn't a sort of you there wasn't a sort of option space within it and I think what I find really amazing actually and and there is huge power in sort of hearing people's stories I think because it opens your eyes and I, I think what's what's amazing is hearing those tales of people though who are in clinical practice because that is the vast majority of us in in the veterinary profession is mm-hmm. in in practice but are doing really inspiring things and thinking slightly outside the box mm-hmm. and setting up a new practice in a different way um and i think mm-hmm. that's just you see so much more of that now than i think we did 10 years ago and meeting inspiring individuals like that is just just amazing and i think also i think it's interesting not to have this idea that that people kind of turn their back on clinical practice because I think also that's quite dynamic. You know, I've been away from clinical practice for coming up for a year and a half, two years or something now, but actually I'm now kind of making plans to, to do more, you know, and go back and do like, it's not, it's not repellent to me at all. It maybe was an issue at some stage, but do you know what I mean? So you can, it's not one thing or the other. And then it doesn't mean that that's it forever. And you know what I mean? So you really can be like, oh no, I'm ready for a bit more of that now, or I'm going to do some of that now. And, and, and making up as you go along, like, I think there's real power in that. Like I'm, I'm, and I'm really comfortable with that now, you know what I mean? It's not this linear thing. So that's really important. I think for people to, um, for people to remember. One of the, the themes that I think comes up, um, and uh, you know, it, comes up i mean i'm I've, i have your your website up here for reference so that i'm keeping <laughs> so it, it better come up because it's on the website <laughs> no, i'm joking so um so kat the um one of the themes i think that that you as an organization at vet led are passionate about um is leadership and obviously leadership is is must be it must be important for change anywhere you know um i wonder um and I'm always reminded, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. So Jacinda Ardern um, recently stepped down as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I love her. Um, so <laughs> I hope you do too. Um, uh, she really, for me, has always been a kind of beacon, um, regardless of politics, she has been a kind of real champion for, you know, compassionate leadership. I, I would say that's accurate. And she's spoken on that before. Um and so I and I I feel from you guys too that there's compassion in the leadership that you are um, teaching. Can you tell us a little bit why leadership is important for change, but also where compassion kind of comes into that? Yeah, I think leadership is hugely important. It has to, it has to be kind of modelled by leaders if we want to see change, and there has to be a drive um, from those who are in decision making roles. Um, I think I'd sort of open up people's minds a bit more to what what is a leader so it's not necessarily just those in the decision making roles but actually we we all at various levels have a responsibility to lead in particular situations 
um, or at particular levels in the in the work that we do. Um, so yeah, leadership sort of teaching, training, skills developing is not just for those who are kind of, you know, at the very, very top of, of the, the tree, if you like. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly when you talk about kind of compassionate leadership, absolutely. Um, I think we, we're in a caregiving profession, but we don't always extend that sort of care to the peers that we work with. Um, and I think it's a challenge. It's certainly you know, not always what we've seen modeled to us. And so there's a relearning when we when we want to become compassionate leaders um, but what i find really exciting is that there's so much that you can learn um, we we kind of fly out of vet school and into postgraduate qualifications and out of nursing college and into more postgraduate qualifications and actually we kind of become intensely good at all the clinical stuff and then 10 years down the line find ourselves or even less actually now find ourselves in leadership positions without necessarily the skill set to do that job really really well um, so it's it's brilliant that you can actually do more to develop your specific leadership skills, um, no matter what level level of practice you're at. Helen, did you? Um, I mean, obviously, I think you, I mean you found yourself obviously in leadership roles in in your clinical life. Did you find that easy? Did you kind of fall into those roles and then think I don't actually have a clue what I'm doing? Oh yeah, totally. Doing? And in fact, it made me want to kind of shy away from it, to be honest, because yeah. you know, I think I went out of I qualified as vet nurse and, you know, I had a really lovely um practice that I worked for and they had a branch and they said to me, would you like to go and be a, a you know the branch head nurse and I oh wow this is amazing you know I've just qualified and yeah of course I love that challenge it was a disaster from the beginning to the end I didn't last very long at all it really soured my taste the taste you know for actual leadership um I found it really difficult after that and I just I wished that somebody would give me some kind of good clear guidance on what I could do um to be a better leader, but also not to be so hard on myself. I didn't have any self-compassion. I felt like I should know all the answers. Um, and I suppose at that time also, there wasn't as many resources freely available to to kind of read and, and understand. And um, yeah, I, just, I, I definitely can can kind of uh, put myself in those shoes and, and remember how that felt. And, you know, I want every nurse to feel like, you know, that they have the possibility within them at any point in their career. It doesn't have to be because they have a title that goes with it, but we all have to be leaders at some point. And that can be leading a checklist or leading a, you know, a, a, um, a team meeting or leading a, a, a resuscitation attempt, any of those things. We have to step up to be a leader in that moment. And having the um, some tools to help us do that is so important right from the beginning. Um, and then nurturing those those um tools and, and growing them into great leaders is just I, it, I just think it's wonderful um if people are given that support but horrible if they don't get the support they deserve because it yes. turns them off to being great leaders yeah as with everything I think with you know the importance of kind of mentorship and and guidance in that way so kind of going back to the 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 overarching theme the the, the change I suppose and again you know you've both um referenced the fact that it's not you know it's not one thing but if you if you were cat if you were to um you know one of the questions that you're kind of asking is you know why or why the profession needs to change and how do we implement that change 
if you were to pick one sort of topic or theme um starting with kind of why what what would you say was the one that comes in quick fire the one that comes first into your mind I mean, no preparation needed i mean straight off the bat i think that one of the biggest challenges that we find in in veterinary is keeping hold of staff um that retention piece is is so important like you know we're all passionate about the profession and we all leave um vet school largely leave vet school and nursing college um keen and wanting to do the job and then there's a massive list so i think i think sort of challenging that and saying okay there's something something needs to change then that's going to be that's a really important question to address and i hope that we will do that at the conference yeah and helen the same question for you i think understanding um human skills non-technical skills you know understanding emotional intelligence understanding that we are humans and that impacts how we feel and function and when we understand what it means to be human we can um be more compassionate we can be more understanding we can understand why we get triggered while we feel emotion while we feel fatigue and burnout why we need to develop resilience both as organizations and individuals i think there's so much growth. I'm really excited for Jason Spendillo's um, session on psychology of change, because I think that's really interesting to delve a bit deeper into that area. Um, and I can't wait to see what Chris Turner is going to say as our keynote, because he's just so inspirational. Um, and from his background as civility saves lives, I think understanding that clear line between the fact that when we experience incivility, we can't feel and function as we, we should, and that impacts our patients. Um, it's just really key to just have a better understanding of ourselves um, and understand how we can really maximise these um, areas so that we're more compassionate and um, look after ourselves. I think it probably feeds into what Kat said about uh, retention and um, recruitment as well. Um, we have a great profession, and I think one of the things that I'd like to see is that we you know, we look after ourselves, we thrive and we make sure that message gets out to everybody. Because at the moment, I think if you ask vets if they would encourage their children to become vets, they'd probably say they mm. wouldn't. So it's a really, yeah, it's a very good point, actually. I think there's a huge piece around kind of overarching culture as well. We recently ran a, a poll um, and and by far and away, the biggest response was around you know, workplace culture. And you know, that's, a, that's a huge topic in itself. But there's definitely a feel that there's something that's not quite right. And that's something that we can do better. Like there's there's good opportunity to do things better. Um, and I think sometimes people just feel like that's that's a big piece and just need a little bit of handholding to break it down into what what can we do to improve our workplace culture and make it a place that people love to be. But that's almost reassuring. Like I wouldn't have thought that that would be what came out. You know, that, that's really interesting, actually, because it just shows you, I think, because for me, immediately, you're, I'm like, and I know nothing about this stuff, but I'm like, but you can change that. You know, like, that's a changeable thing. So actually, all hope is not lost, right? Because that is a very manageable, changeable thing that you can start doing right now or even yeah. later on today or tomorrow. <laughs> so it's not, that feels very real, very achievable, doesn't it? Um and I'm sure there, you know, maybe be some people listening in practice where they're like, oh, I don't know if that's achievable for us. But 
at the end of the day it is you know again you just need those 25 percent of people to be on board and suddenly you've got a wave of or movement of change you know and and it's a real thing and that's where it's having sort of specific tools and tips i think can be helpful because yes there are practices and and individuals who will think oh i just don't think that that can happen where i am but actually having mm -hmm. some really practical tools and tips will will assist that and make it seem more possible um, I know Helen's um, going to do a great talk on um, implementation of change. And I think that will be really interesting um, coming out of like, how, how do we actually go about doing this? Like, what can I take back on Monday after after listening to all these inspiring talks? What can I actually do when actually it's it's busy, it's hard, there's not much time. Um, I find this relationship with a colleague really tricky. Um, so th that that should be good, I hope. <laughs> Yeah, so do I so do I Helen no pressure um, no pressure the, uh, no pressure at all um so we talk about game changers they sound like pretty cool uh people <laughs> um so I wonder if you could share with us uh Helen who is in your mind a game changer oh gosh who's a game changer um I think one name um um, springs to mind. Well, there's a couple of names that spring to mind, but one name springs to mind, which is um, Victoria Johnson from VetCT. I think she's she's a massive game changer and such a lovely person as well. Um, always has time to um, stop and chat and um, has built an amazing business with an amazing ethos. Um, so I think she's a game changer. And I think we're lucky enough to have her on a panel um, in fact, she's with you, Scott, who's also a game changer. <laughs> oh, rubbish. But that makes me feel even more nervous about this yeah. now. Thanks for that. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, we're not doing it. We're not doing a session on imposter syndrome. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe we should. Maybe we need to. Okay. <laughs> Fine. No, I'm excited then about that even more. Even There's more. So many great game changers within our profession. I just can't wait to hear what people have got to say and and I think the other thing is we we really want this conference to be um quite interactive you know if you're there in the audience uh, you know if you're a delegate then please do put questions in the chat and have a think about it and think about it quite deeply and um kind of really participate because that's what makes these events special is when we get great great questions as well yeah absolutely and Kat for you a game changer you've had time to think I know the pressure's on um, well, it's interesting as you were talking um, there, thinking about different individuals, and um, because I think we, we mentioned imposter syndrome, and you know the obvious person who comes to mind there is Katie Ford. Um, you know, she's fantastic. That who has stepped out to the clinical side of things, talks about imposter syndrome so widely amongst unbelievable extra numbers of hats that that amazing lady wears. Mm. Um, and I always find her inspiring, and just on a, I think just on a personal level, I think she's she's kind of she's always this kind of epitome of calm whenever I'm stressed out about something she brings mm -hmm. this voice of calm into into um whatever is going on um and I think she really is making big change and um, I've just seen her okay. Instagram um mm -hmm. event um that's mm -hmm. upcoming and I think that's going to be fantastic and just um yeah, really making big waves in the in the veterinary space. So if people haven't come across her, then look her up. I tell you, I tell you who else I'd like to just give a, a little mention to is Jack Pye. Um, big Jack Pye fan, oh. but he's a game changer for the ends as well because he's, you know. Oh, he doesn't need any more ex any more excuses to be loved. My God, he's going to love this. His head will not get any bigger. He will not fit through the door. 
<laughs> no, I'm joking. I love him. No, that's a, I think that's true. And I think, but just, you know, just people that, um, just, I don't know, I just a really important voices, particularly with the nurses coming from lots of different angles. They've all got their little kind of niches. And I love that when you see someone carve out something like that and just have a, a really good, strong voice in whatever direction. I just love seeing that happen. Mm-hmm. And particularly nurses are really good at that, by the way. Like they're they're just good at that. Like I I I have particular respect for what they do and the kind of communities that they're creating. So yeah. Yeah, yeah good De- one. Jack definitely. Uh, <laughs> so um the yeah, so okay, I I I mean it all sounds very exciting and and I think, you know, the 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 most exciting thing is, you know, the for me just the kind of all the different people that are involved. I love the fact that we're bringing so many voices together. You know, that's always really important. And and it's so inspiring to hear things from all these different, amazing, interesting um, perspectives. So no, all sounds very, very, um, very, very exciting. So just finally then, um, I, I suppose, uh, you know, in the lead up to this, just from, from your own very personal point of view, if you know thinking ahead to when people do have to go home and come you know coming down off that high from a conference when you're I, I'm sure people will understand that feeling that London vet show like absolute you know <laughs> up to the nines feeling which I'm sure people will have a similar one after this conference what when when reality hits what do you hope to be the 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 thing that people come away with and are able to translate into real life Kat? I think overall I hope that people come away feeling that change is possible there's an awful lot of kind of voices out there that are going oh it's just bad and there's nothing we can do about it and I really hope that we can inspire that there is something that you can do um, at whatever level and just feeling positive about change that you know positive about the profession that there's you know a real hope for the future that there's an amazing profession that we've got out there amazing community of people um and that there's little things that you can do um every day of the week and um, to inspire change within your team very good i like that helen follow that <laughs> if i can um i feel like that was a bit of a mic drop there uh, Kat. Um, i did as well <laughs> um, <laughs> I I want people to be brave enough or create brave spaces to start conversations, to have the language Mm. to start conversations about these kind of things, to Mm -hmm. begin to explore it because, like I said before, together, you know, you might come back and you might be full of all these ideas, but starting that conversation with the people that you work with, getting them enthusiastic and then being able to start talking about actually what's an idea turning into reality. um, I think that's a really magical process. And I think that something that we all get so much joy out of. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's what I'd like to see that people have that kind of courage to start the start the conversation perhaps about something that's not about the you know the day-to-day grind perhaps but something that we can all look forward to some some goals that really inspire us amazing 
Well, listen, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to chat today. Um, and I wish you the best of luck with the whole thing and everything else. Um, and I hope I don't disappoint on the day. Oh, you're going to be amazing. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'll try not to say anything stupid, I promise, or too controversial <laughs> or swear. <laughs> Sorry. The three know. things. They're my, it's my little like post-it note. Don't swear, don't say anything too controversial and don't make a tit of yourself. I think that's the three things. So, my post-it notes say similar, anyway, thank, Scott, don't worry. Similar stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, both of you. And we look forward to um, an exciting year ahead for, for all of us, actually, and for VTX and BetLive. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much, Scott. Okay, so today in our clinical segment, we're going to talk um, a little bit more about some of the specifics of the diagnosis of leptospirosis. And, and this is, um, as we mentioned before, really going to be mostly dogs that we're talking about. So as far as, you know, haematology biochemistry, which we're going to be running on many patients for many reasons, you know, any unwell patient often, that's a, a good starting point. And from a haematology point of view with leptospirosis, we're going to be potentially seeing uh, maybe a mild non-regenerative anemia, which to be honest with you, we can see secondary to lots of different things. So often that's quite a non-specific finding, um, but it wouldn't be uncommon for them to have some degree of anemia, which is normally non-regenerative. As far as the, the white blood cells, um, again, you know, as with many infectious diseases, there can be variation in what we see with the white blood cells. And often the white blood cell changes are not specific to a certain condition. And so often we will see an increase in white blood cell uh, number overall with a, a neutrophilic uh, leukocytosis. So the neutrophil count will be uh, increased. Um sometimes with a left shift so there's going to be the presence of banned or immature neutrophils sometimes a lymphopenia a monocytosis again you know consistent with with inflammation infection etc so again you know relatively uh, non-specific changes what we do see and you know what can maybe be a little bit more of a nod towards leptospirosis is the thrombocytopenia and that can often be moderate and even severe in some cases. Now, remember, we can see a reduction in platelet number or thrombocytopenia, again, with for lots of reasons. And often, actually, uh, often the thrombocytopenia is not even relevant because the machine will think that the count is low. But actually, when you verify that with a blood smear, there's often platelet clumps and it's actually not that, that significant. But anyway... So always important that we verify what's happening with a thrombocytopenia, with a uh, blood smear. Uh, but certainly thrombocytopenia is something that we see with leptospirosis. As far as the biochemistry, um, although we mentioned before, we must never um, think that every single case of leptospirosis is definitely going to have liver and kidney involvement it would be certainly common for us to see increases in urea, creatinine, 
Um, and actually, the majority of leptospirosis patients that we see will have increases in urea and creatinine. Also, liver enzyme increases, but again, not in every single case. So increases in ALT, ALP, uh, and bilirubin. So that would be, again, one size does not fit all as far as not every patient will have every change. But those are common changes that we will see with leptospirosis. With the biochemistry, otherwise, um, it'll depend a little bit what else is going on uh, with, you know, with the patient. The globulin might be up a little bit. The albumin might be down a little bit because of inflammation. Um, uh, and otherwise, you know, we, we may see uh, phosphorus, for instance, going up um, if there's been a kidney injury, which, which we, as we said, we often see. Generally speaking, um, there's no way of kind of pattern recognizing, sadly, from, from the bloods. But interestingly, um, increases in serum activity of ALP uh, and total bilirubin are actually more frequent than increases in, in ALT activity. I spend a lot of my time saying ALP, alkaline phosphatase, is, you know, very nonspecific and not often that helpful. But actually, interestingly you will more commonly see increases in, in serum ALP and total bilirubin than ALT in, in dogs with leptospirosis, if that's of any help. But again, uh, nothing fits perfectly into any one slot as far as what we're seeing blood-wise. Electrolytes are really important to check, but again, honestly, they can go all over the place. So yes, it's important that we're checking uh, potassium, uh, sodium, uh, chloride, um, but they can vary in their disruption. Uh, and But important, I think, electrolytes in any sick patient, to be very honest, because there's something that we can do something about, you know, so we can we can take measures to do something about potassium, for instance, if it's low. And so that, you know, is an important thing to be aware of. And also hemostatic problems in leptospirosis patients. So um, I, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously keeping a close eye on those platelets. We may want to, to check secondary coagulation parameters such as PT and APTT. Um, do we do that in every patient? Maybe not, but certainly if there's any sign of bleeding, uh, then we would be wanting to, to look at those parameters. Urinalysis. Um, is also important. Just be very careful, obviously, when you're handling the urine of a, a suspected leptospirosis patient. Um, often they will be isosthenuric, um, but they can also be hyposthenuric, so specific gravity can, can vary. Interesting things are glucosuria, potentially hemat hematuria, pyuria, and maybe even some granular casts. But I think the glucosuria is interesting, particularly in a patient where, you know, circulating levels of glucose are normal, Glucosuria is a, a wee alarm bell, you know, a possible for leptospirosis. It's not the only thing that causes glucosuria, obviously, but it's worth kind of, I think it is worthwhile kind of noting. Um, and proteinuria, potentially. So I think the question is, you know, we've we've got potentially vague clinical signs. Um, we've got blood work that initially is not pathognomonic for leptospirosis so my question is why why are we looking for leptospirosis in our patients and i think the answer to that is um patients that are, are 
presenting acutely sick, particularly with liver and kidney uh, blood abnormalities, but also maybe those patients that are have vague signs, you know, the, the ones that are just not that well and maybe vomiting a bit. Risk factors are a big thing. Are these patients at higher risk of leptospirosis? Are they unvaccinated? Are they drinking from puddles? <laughs> are they, you know, so are they are they running about with rats and mice? You know, is there is there risk factors in their life? And obviously, blood work abnormalities relating to liver kidneys, but also, as we've just highlighted, low platelets, non-specific anemia, and glucosuria would be other things that just maybe ding a little alarm bell in our minds. And so how are we going to make a more definitive diagnosis? And you will see lots of uh, possible possibilities for, for making a definitive diagnosis in, in the literature. Um, our baseline blood work is going to be important for that. But then we have really sort of two main ways of looking for leptospirosis. We can look for the antibodies that have been produced in response to leptospirosis, or we can use PCR to look for the organ the organism itself. So we're either looking for the DNA of the organism, or we're looking for the antibody reaction to that organism. Just really quickly, you'll see things in the literature like dark field microscopy, you know, true culture, um, and also potentially tissue biopsies and special stains for leptospirosis. Honestly, none of those are really practically applicable. They may well detect leptospirosis, but whether they're not available or culture is really challenging and takes ages, the, the, they are not really practically applicable. The main ways we're going to look for leptospirosis, as I said, are going to be through PCR and culture. Um, rubbish, not culture, uh, serology antibody you know looking for antibodies so let's talk about pcr so pcr is looking for bacterial dna we can do pcr in blood and urine and actually often we are it's a package that'll come looking looking at both basically leptospirosis will be positive pcr in the blood initially but that usually only lasts for about seven to ten days and then they're not back to remake in the blood um and so they tend then maybe not to be positive in the blood after that initial seven to ten days um and that can then gives you false positives from a blood point of view but they usually will then become positive in the urine and if we're not quite sure when the patient's been infected that's why there's a justification for doing pcr blood and urine the other major thing that's going to affect PCR testing is if they've been given antibiotics. And so we may find that they are falsely negative with PCR because they've been on antibiotics. So that's something to take into consideration. And then we've got serology. So serology is not perfect either. Serology is looking for the antibody production in response to the infection um, and that suffers from problems because actually we can see false negatives with this test early on in the disease course because they've not had time to mount uh, antibody response and also if they have been vaccinated that can cause high serological titers as well 
So the way of getting around those problems is often by doing paired titers. So you'll do titers at the beginning and do them again in, you know, uh, 10, around 10 days time. And you're looking for rising antibody titers. And that is going to help because, for instance, you're not going to get that rising titer with previous vaccination. So that's going to demonstrate that there is a, a a clinically, you know, active, significant disease. And they're going to look for various serovirus of leptospirosis with these antibody tests. Um, as I said, really paired uh, titers, seven to 14 days apart are the kind of best way to go. So neither of those two tests, um, you know, the the antibody or the, the PCR are, are perfect. Um, so we can see, you know, uh, let's say, you know, particularly with the PCR, we can see it being positive in blood initially and then becoming negative in blood. And that can maybe give you a false uh, negative result. And, and also with antimicrobial use, we could get false negatives with PCR. We can see false positives with the serology if they've had vaccination or previous exposure of leptospirosis. And so only that paired titer will, will potentially show clinically significant infection now. And false negatives with the serology when you do it early on in the disease and there's not been time for um, an antibody response. So when people say to me, what's the best test for leptospirosis? Honestly, and I think, you know, it's maybe one of the, those ivory tower things where you're like, well, with all the money in the world. But honestly, truly, I would do both tests. So I, I would, combination for me, that probably does, neither test is perfect, covers all your bases. And that would be what I would, what I would do. So in an ideal world, but if... Um, you know, money was limited. In these acute patients, I probably would choose PCR, blood and urine um, if you could only choose one, you know, in, in acute disease. Other um, diagnostics, I mean, we're, we're talking about how much imaging do we have to do? And again, you know, I think it depends a little bit on the patient. If the patient's showing any respiratory signs associated with leptospirosis, then I probably would uh, recommend doing um, some some imaging and, and the, the changes we can see with radiography or CT um, can be variable, uh, you know, a mild interstitial um, uh or even sometimes kind of more nodular pattern, alveolar infiltrates. Um, so it can be very varied and there can sometimes be small amounts of pleural effusion. But I would I would only be routinely radiographing those with, with, with respiratory signs. And then with ultrasound, again, depends maybe what else is going on with the patient. We can see with leptospirosis some cortical hyperechogenicity, renomegaly, pylactasia with ultrasound. Um but we can also see hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, a bit of ascites. Um, pancreas can look a bit big. GI tract can look a bit big. Um, so it really can be very variable. And again, it would depend on the clinical signs of the patient. And then just to round off our discussion today, um, how do we treat leptospirosis? And, and ultimately, antibiotics and which antibiotics are going to be best. And ultimately, that comes down to the way that the antibiotics affect this organism. So penicillins um, were shown to reduce uh, leptospiremia, but potentially fail to reliably clear 
the organism from the kidney. And doxycycline has been shown to more reliably clear leptospirosis from the blood and from the tissue. And so often practically what will happen is, in the UK certainly we do not have a, an injectable form, a readily available injectable form of doxycycline. So often what we will do is use inject injectable amoxicillin clavulonic acid um, because the patients are sick and we don't want to give them oral medication. And as soon as they can take oral medication, then I would switch them on to oral doxycycline, five milligrams per kilogram orally every 12 hours or 10 milligrams per kilogram orally every 24 hours for two to three weeks. And, and so it, it, that, it tends to be that kind of combination uh, of treatment. The other treatment will absolutely depend on the individual patient and we'll not go through all of those scenarios today. Depending how sick they are, depending on which parts of their body are affected, will absolutely uh, affect what other treatment they get. So fluid therapy is going to be really important to main maintain hydration, co co correcting electrolyte and acid base abnormalities, anti-emetic therapy, potentially even anti-hypertensive therapy, pain control, nutritional support are always going to be important. If they've had a renal injury, then, you know, carefully measuring urine output, fluid therapy, and even in more severe cases, um, considering things like hemodialysis. With hepatic injury, then supporting the liver. In the acute setting, I really like using drugs like N-acetylcysteine to support the liver. And then obviously, orally, we can use SAMI containing products um, and things like arsidioxycholic acid. If they have a lung injury, then obviously oxygen support and, and even in some cases, mechanical ventilation. And I'm always thinking about the long term with these patients. The prognosis, if they're treated appropriately, is actually generally very good. Um, 71 to 80% in some studies, you know, uh, recovering from leptospirosis. But that all depends on the speed of diagnosis, appropriate therapy. They may have acute kidney and liver injury. Does that turn into chronic kidney and liver injury? And sometimes it does. And so it's it's about being mindful of all of these things. The key thing with leptospirosis, honestly, is actually just mitigating some of that risk. So know your geographical area, know the risk in your area, reduce exposure, whether that's, you know, avoiding slow moving water um, and obviously areas that have high rodent um, populations. But honestly, uh, vaccinate, you know, and I know there's controversy surrounding that, but I would be recommending vaccination, um, particularly in, in patients that are higher risk. Um, but to be honest with you, leptospirosis is everywhere and I think there is risk for all of our canine patients regardless of exactly where they are in the world or how they live their life. If possible I would use a quadrivalent vaccine um, so usually to include Canicola, Icterohemorrhagica, Australis and Gryptophosa. I can't say it, you're gonna to have to forgive me. Um, the duration of immunity probably 12 months maybe longer, but usually these are yearly vaccines that we're giving. Um, and remember, vaccination is not perfect. Vaccination will not stop patients from getting leptospirosis. So you should never 
take leptospirosis off your list of differentials just because there is vaccination. It may help with disease severity. It may help to reduce shedding, but it's not going to completely stop your patients from getting leptospirosis. I, I understand that there is um, controversy surrounding leptospirosis vaccination you know, and vaccine reactions, but actually we can, based on literature, confidently tell our, our owners and our, 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 our pet carers that actually the, the incidence of risks associated with um, leptospirosis vaccines are very small. And um, actually some of the original vaccine reactions were to do with the formulation or the, the even the adjunct that was in the vaccine and and a lot of that is now not a problem so really the risk of vaccination is very low we do have to think about human health um this is a zoonotic disease um we, we have to be very careful particularly when handling urine um I would be making sure that, that patients need to be um, highlighted in the hospital, that they are at risk and obviously in, in isolated areas. If, if possible, you want to be move, uh, limiting their movement through the hospital. PPE is really important when, when handling um, leptospirosis patients, including eye protection. I, I did work with a nurse who, contaminated, uh, who contracted leptospirosis because uh, infected urine splashed into her eye. And so that is a real risk. And and even, you know, not pressure washing animals' cages that have had leptospirosis to avoid aerosolization of, of the organism. You know, simple things like that will also will also help. You want to walk these patients frequently so that they're not peeing in their kennels. You know, simple things like that will also make uh, a big uh, difference. Um, and I think be a leader in your hospital and and be aware of of possible cases and and protect each other by by being proactive because it really can be a very serious problem for for us as humans as well i'm just going to swing back to the case that i started this whole conversation about in the previous episode and and just to summarize so we we talked about a case of leptospirosis and, and some of the challenges with this particular case was that it peed all over the hospital. The staff got peed on. You know, one of the questions the owners asked was, how, how are we going to treat our dog? How are we going to monitor our dog? How long is lepto shed for? And actually, interestingly, in that case, the urine was PCR positive, but the blood was negative. And they also had a cat in their house. So should we worry about the cat? And just to finish up, we'll answer some of those questions. So how should we treat? We've, we've said that the doxycycline is the, is the way to go. How should they monitor? And that really comes down to lab work. And if they've got liver and kidney injury, then we're monitoring that with, with uh, biochemistry. How long is it shed for? So actually shedding is reduced significantly once you start treatment. So two to three days after starting antibiotics, that shedding should have significantly uh, decreased. Why was the PCR positive in urine um, and not blood? Um, and that's because, like we said, initially they're PCR positive in blood, but then they'll become negative in blood and as the organism moves to the target tissues. Would we test the cat? Um, I think that 
there's a bit of a de- debate about that, to be very honest. And I would say routinely people are not testing cats, but actually uh, I have some colleagues that I work with that would, would test the cat. So that is, you know, definitely is a consideration. And should we worry that the dog peed everywhere? I mean, absolutely, yes. And that's why we should be taking great, great care with these patients, even if they're possible leptospirosis as they move through the hospital. And I think my take home messages are really that um, this is a disease that we need to take seriously. This is a disease that we need to um, be thinking about, even in vaccinated dogs. And my opinion, based on the literature and based on the risk to to humans and animals and, and the longer term consequences, I think vaccination is key in the prevention, but it's not the only part of this. And we still need to be keeping this disease very much on our radar. A massive thank you to Helen and Kat for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Um, Now, we've obviously recorded this in the lead up to their conference in 2023. Do not worry if you're listening after the conference has taken place, then that material is still available uh, online for six months. It's all recorded and we'll put all the details of the conference into the show notes um, so you can have a look at all of that. Thank you so much again for listening and we'll see you next time.